The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today we're talking saving river herring and Atlantic sea herring. And my guests are Pam Lyon Groman. Hello, Pam. Hi, Rob. It's great to be here. And Roger Fleming. Hello, Roger. Hey, Rob. It's great to be here. And uh, let me tell people a bit about you, too. Uh, Pam Lyons-Groman is the executive director of the National Coalition for Marine Conservation, NCMC. This is a public advocacy group dedicated exclusively to conserving ocean fish, and it was founded uh, by anglers. And Pam is, among her many jobs there, is heading up the Forage First campaign. Uh, and so we'll start with Pam, but let me introduce Roger while we're uh, doing the intros. Uh, Roger Fleming is an attorney with Earth Justice, a nonprofit public interest firm that represents a wide range of the law firm that represents a wide range of clients seeking to protect the natural resources, wildlife, and rights of all people to a healthy environment. And Roger's part of the Earth Justice's Washington, D.C. office. However, he works primarily from his office in Appleton, Maine. So, Pam, where are you calling from? I am calling from sunny Leesburg, Virginia today. That's where our headquarters are. So we have a good distribution from Maine to Leesburg, Virginia. <laughs> That's right. So how is it down there? Uh, well, very, very warm today and very humid. Um, so um, we're dealing with it. We've got our air conditioner cranking in the background. I hope it doesn't make too much noise today. It sounds excellent. Uh, tell us a bit about the Forge First campaign. Well, sure. Well, I just want to mentioned that our group, National Coalition for Marine Conservation, was founded back in 1973. And when it was first founded, there was a lot of concern about um, overfishing the big fish stocks, the big tunas, the swordfish, sharks. And so as the years went on, as we worked very hard and diligently to um, try and rebuild those stocks and work with fishery managers on plans that would rebuild them, we realized we really had to start thinking about their forage base, their prey base, and what they eat. So in 2006, we launched our Forage First campaign. And very simply, what Forage First is about is uh, making conservation of prey for predators the primary objective 
of managing forage fisheries. And forage fisheries are fisheries for herring, for squid, for mackerel, for basically small schooling fish that are in our ocean that are a food source for a wide variety of predators, not just big fish, but also mammals and seabirds. And what we do is we work with fishery management um, bodies, um, both at the federal level and also through uh, state commissions, to encourage them to protect predator-prey relationships as a really important first step to start managing in an ecosystem-based approach. And uh, that's the gist of the campaign, and we cover a variety of species. Today we'll talk about herring, but as I mentioned, um, squid and mackerel, and we also work on the West Coast with sardines and anchovies and krill out there. Um, there's a lot of important forage species that are part of U.S. fisheries. And shad is another one? Shad is another very important one, and thank you for bringing that up. They're actually part of the herring family. But, um, oh, I see. Yes. Uh, so tell us a bit about um, there are uh, two kinds of herring. Right. Well, there's actually there's many kinds of herring. When we talk about herring, we're talking about the family Clupeidae, and Clupeidae is a really large fish family of over 200 species. But for our purposes here on the Atlantic coast, we're really concerned about Atlantic sea herring, and we're also concerned about river herrings, which are two species, um, alewife and blueback herring, and we're also concerned about American shad. And um, just to give you a little brief background on the differences with those different species, is sea herring, as the name kind of implies, they spawn at sea, and they spend most of their lives, or all their lives at sea, where river herrings, um, including alewife and blueback herring, will spawn in river systems, and so will American shad. So that's one major way to, to distinguish those. So we've had on other programs uh, information about various rivers groups coming together and really trying to improve the habitat for the river herring, the blueback and the alewives, and, uh, and yet there's, that's only, you know, the alewives where I live, they, they come up the river and then they go down the river into the ocean for like seven years before they come back again. So there's a lot of concern about what's happening out there in the ocean. That's right. That's right. And um, what you see when you, we don't have a lot of information from a stock assessment standpoint about river herrings. But when you look at the catch history over the decades, you can see how we had a huge foreign ocean fleet um, that dominated our waters in the 60s um, and early 70s. And you could see just a crash in the, in the catch of those populations during that time. And the reason is once river herring spawn in the rivers, they actually do go out to sea for about three to six years um, uh, the young ones head out to sea for three to six years. And they join in um, other schools of fish on certain feeding grounds, and some of those schools include Atlantic mackerel and also sea herring. And it's at, at that point when they're very vulnerable to being caught up in the fisheries um, for those uh, sea-dwelling species, the, the sea herring and the mackerel. And so there's a, a major concern. And what, what happened is after the foreign the foreign fleets left our waters, you could actually see through the 80s how river herring and American shad were actually starting to rebuild and things were looking a little better. But then you got into the 90s and things started uh, dropping precipitously again and several states um, went to moratorium for river herring. 
and that includes Rhode Island and Connecticut and Massachusetts and North Carolina, meaning that they have no fisheries now for river herring. They haven't um, for a number of years. So, you know, we're very concerned about what's, what's happening at sea. And during that same time frame that we saw those decline in landings, we had a new fishery emerge, um, a U.S.-based fishery. The foreign fleets were gone, and their large boats were gone, but instead what happened is they were replaced by these American vessels, very large vessels. Um, they engage in uh, what's called midwater trawling, which is dragging a very large net um, through the water at pretty high speeds. And they target sea herring, and they target Atlantic mackerel with those nets. And because mackerel and sea herring feed on the same kinds of plankton that river herring feed on, what you find is the river herring gets scooped up as bycatch. And young shad are part of that too. Shad, American shad are our larger species, but they spend a number of their young years at sea. And we know that juvenile shad are also getting caught up in these very large trawl nets. When you say shad are a larger species, that means physically they're bigger fish, but is the population also larger? Well, we do have a shad assessment. We don't have a current river herring assessment, even though like I said, the trends in the river um, herring that have been mm. returning have been very alarming. But for shad, there was an assessment done recently, 2007, and it found that American shad stocks along the East Coast were at all-time lows and showed no signs of recovery. And it did also show that there was that uptick in the 80s. We had put a lot of money and a lot of effort into rebuilding. And then you get into the 90s. Again, this is the time the Midwater Trough Fleet um, emerged for the U.S. fishery, um, then the shad started declining again. But there's other factors also that happened um, during that time, um, including, um, you know, a rise in, in striped bass and predation. So there's many variables that are looking at. But the problem with ocean bycatch is ocean bycatch is, is wasteful, and it's also something that we can control. And um, as of yet, there has been no serious effort to monitor or mitigate, um, mitigate bycatch at sea for shad and river herring. And that is what we are focusing our efforts on now and have been for the past couple of years. Yes, and we'll get to more about what the steps are being taken today. Uh, you mentioned that uh, some states call the moratorium on um, herring, and yet do you think there was any response in the herring population to that moratorium? There have been a few runs that have had slight upticks recently. Um, but nothing to say uh, resoundingly that recovery is on its way. And considering that these are... So what does that tell us? You know, there's no, there's no fishing occurring. You would expect that if it had been the directed fishery in river that was the problem, we would see very large upticks by now, and we're just not seeing that. Right, and so the reason we're not seeing them is because something else is hitting them, right? Right, right, right. There's another source of mortality out there that's, that's very significant that's keeping the stocks depressed, and it's our responsibility to control the sources of mortality that we can control, and bycatch is certainly one of those. And are there others that you're worried about? Well, uh, we could well, it's like put pollution a, a problem, or is, you know... Um, could you repeat your question? Is, like, pollution a problem for the recovery, Absolutely. or is uh, something other than bycatch and... I think we, we still take. have to, yes, absolutely. We have to look at habitat and impediments um, to spawning grounds in the rivers. But over the last few decades, um, between U.S. Fish and Wildlife and a lot of state efforts, we've put over a quarter billion dollars 
into restoration efforts. So things have not gotten worse. They're continuing to get better, but yet we're not seeing the improvement in the stocks and the run sizes. Right. You're putting all this effort in, and you're just seeing incremental improvements when you should be seeing significant uh, rebounding, and yet it's just not happening. Right. Uh, um, so, so what should we do about that? Well, what we need to do is to um, make sure that we have a handle on the magnitude um, of the bycatch problem, and we have um, some pretty, for the limited amount of data that we do have, we have some pretty alarming information that very large numbers of um, river herring can get caught up in a net that's targeting mackerel or um, sea herring. Um, these numbers are well into the thousands and could um, easily exceed the total number of fish that would return to a river. And that's just in yes. one haul. And that's so, alarming, yes. Right. We, we um, are very encouraged. What the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission is, if I could just explain what that is, that's a compact of, of the 15 states in the Atlantic seaboard to manage species, um, recognizing that some species, they don't know state boundaries. So this is a compact that's been around since the 1940s. And so that body manages river herring and shad. And they do have a fishery management plan for river herring and shad. And in 2007, they recognized, um, because of the very large drop in landings and states going to moratoriums, um, how important it was to take action. and they have developed new amendments to their fishery management plan that's going to put more states in moratorium. Um, if states cannot prove the sustainability of their river herring and shad runs, all river herring runs and fisheries will be closed as of January 2012. And uh, most states have announced intentions to go to complete moratorium. They can't prove that those um, fisheries are sustainable or don't have the resources to do so. And for shad, it's not looking much better. And the shad fisheries will all close um, in 2013, again, unless states can prove that they have a sustainable run that can support a fishery. So the Atlantic States is doing everything they can with a directed fishery, but they, the commission does recognize that there is significant um, potential for, for losses at sea through bycatch, and they have called on the... Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council, which manages federal fisheries based in the Mid-Atlantic, and the New England Fishery Management Council, um, which manages fisheries up in the New England region, um, to take action in their fisheries and to um, put in a program that monitors bycatch, accurately assesses the problem, and puts in steps to mitigate that bycatch and reduce it as much as possible. And that's where we are now. But those, those federal... Thank you. I'm sorry. Thank you, Pam. We're going to have to take a break, and we'll be back about what we can do to save the river herring and the sea heron. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. All together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking saving river herring and Atlantic sea herring, and my guests are Pam Groman and Roger Fleming. And Pam was telling us a bit about, uh, well, telling us quite a bit about the work of the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, bringing the states together to, uh, in state waters, manage the herring uh, and monitor the herring catch of both river and sea herrings. And she was uh, transitioning to more offshore problems. And so... Pam, when we go offshore, who's in charge of manage? Whose jurisdiction are we talking about now? Thank you, Rob, for for asking that because I want to be clear that um, through the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, the the jurisdiction they have through um, state authority only goes out to three miles offshore. Yet the migration of American shad and river herring goes into federal waters, which is from about three to two hundred miles offshore, and that area, which we call our Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ, um, is managed by federal fishery management bodies, and um, the two we're, we're working with on this bycatch issue are the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council and the New England Fishery Management Council. And, um, oh, so Roger, you've been, uh, as, a, as a lawyer um, and as an attorney with Earth Justice, uh, very much involved in um, watching and, and maybe participating in the work of these two fisheries councils. 
Can you tell us a bit about how they were, operate? Uh, sure, Rob. Uh, thanks. And, yeah, that, uh, that's correct. We've been working a lot over the years with, uh, with Pam and many other conservation groups. And, uh, and, in fact, a number of our clients are actually uh, commercial and recreational fishermen that share similar concerns about uh, restoring and protecting uh, our forage base uh, because for the reasons Sam stated earlier, it's so critical to so many other uh, uh, species in the ecosystem and the, uh, really create a critical nexus between our watersheds and our, and our oceans. Um, as Pam uh, indicated earlier, uh, in the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, foreign fleets of industrial fishing vessels uh, really did a lot of damage to U.S. fisheries, uh, both uh, some of our uh, uh, commercially uh, valuable fish stocks that uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, like cod, haddock, um, and species like that, but also uh, our forage base, our species of, uh, of Atlantic herring uh, in particular, crashed at those times. And one of the uh, responses by the federal government to, um, to these foreign fleets was uh, passage in 1976 of what today is our uh, primary federal fisheries law, the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Uh, primary objective of the Magnuson-Stevens Act was uh, really to move these foreign vessels out of U.S. waters. Pam mentioned uh, the exclusive economic zone, or the EEZ, that established the 200-mile limit for U.S. waters. And as part of the Magnuson Act, uh, Congress set up uh, a series of regional councils around the country that are um, charged with uh, managing our fish populations at sustainable levels. Uh, these are fairly unique uh, bodies in, uh, you know, in U.S. regulatory law. Uh, they're populated by representatives that are uh, appointed by, uh, they're nominated by states, technically appointed by uh, the Secretary of Commerce, and they're primarily filled uh, with uh, fishermen uh, over the years. Um, it uh, in many ways, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's an opportunity to bring uh, expertise uh, to the table to help uh, with fisheries uh, policy decisions. Uh, on the other hand, uh, councils have been criticized over the years because uh, uh, at times they've made decisions that sort of reflect the makeup uh, of uh, of the individuals on the council, specifically uh, fishing interests. As you might imagine, sometimes it's, uh, it's difficult, even if you're not making a decision specifically about your own fishery, to uh, make the tough decisions that are needed to be made about uh, somebody else's fishery, uh, a fishery that a fellow fisherman might operate in. These uh, fishery management councils uh, are uh, primarily, they, they make recommendations. Ultimately, the decisions about uh, fisheries management, uh, including uh, stocks uh, from uh, some of the commercially valuable species I spoke about before, all the way down to forage species. Ultimately, the decisions about how to manage those stocks are made by the Secretary of Commerce and a federal agency known as the National Marine Fisheries Service. But uh, the ability of the Secretary of Commerce and the National Marine Fisheries Service to affect the policy recommendations is limited by statute. So these are very 
uh, powerful policymaking institutions um, within our uh, federal fisheries regulatory structure. And um, the issues that, uh, that we're working on today with, uh, with Pam and, uh, and a number of other clients uh, really flow from uh, the decisions, well, frankly, it's both decisions that have been made and the decisions that have not been made uh, to address the decline of important uh, forage species like Atlantic herring, river herring, shad, and mackerel. Yes. And, all right, well, let's talk about that. The, um, um, well, it, as, as Pam indicated, a, a great deal has been done uh, to restore habitat, um, to try to improve fish passage, try to address uh, pollution issues uh, in our rivers that would benefit uh, river herring and shad. Um, and uh, even moratoriums, as Sam indicated, have been uh, put in place by the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries uh, Commission. But beyond that three-mile line, um, frankly, there's uh, been a, uh, what in effect is an unregulated federal fishery for river herring and shad. Um, the fishery is prosecuted by uh, a fleet of uh, these industrial trawl vessels that Pam was uh, speaking about before. One of the ironies of the, uh, of the uh, history with the Magnuson-Stevens Act is that, uh, as I mentioned, uh, one of the major impetus for passing the act was to move these foreign uh, fleets of large industrial trawlers out of U.S. waters. But over the years, as uh, our stock started to rebound, uh, a domestic fleet of industrial trawlers has moved into uh, New England waters. These, uh, these vessels uh, target Atlantic herring uh, in, the, uh, in the New England waters in the, uh, in the northeast, and they uh, target uh, mackerel, uh, squid, and butterfish in the mid-Atlantic region, a little closer to where Pam is from. And in doing this, uh, the vessels uh, uh, also catch uh, river herring, and shad when uh, they're uh, in their life cycle uh, at sea. Um, what we've attempted to do uh, over the years is try to improve a number of uh, measures uh, in uh, various fishery management plans that are specific to, say, Atlantic herring or mackerel. But uh, in addition to that, there's also uh, third missing piece, which would be a fishery management plan which addresses specifically the river herring and the shad when they're at sea. We think through, um, you know, a combination of, of these types of vehicles. We could get measures in place which might be able to limit the bycatch or the unintentional catch of river herring and shad in these industrial trawl fisheries. But to date, um, serious measures uh, by the federal government just uh, have not been taken. Well, it's a real challenge given that um, the fishery council um, structure is kind of participatory, consensus building, sort of, you know, um, kind of a democratic process of coming to recommendations, if not decisions. And yet, of the herring fishing fleet, you have a huge diversity of types of vessels, and yet, there's a small percentage of vessels that are really mega midwater trawler types, 
and they seem to be taking an inordinate chunk out of the whole population, and yet you've got to write laws that apply for everybody. I think that's right, and I, I think that one of the key pieces here uh, really centers around the issue of scale. Um, for years, uh, Atlantic Caring and, uh, well, Atlantic Caring in particular, um, the stock that I'm most familiar with in the Northeast, uh, was removed at you know, relatively sustainable levels, and Atlantic Caring, when it's harvested, uh, you know, historically it was a it was a food uh, it was a food product. Um, although that has declined uh, over the years, and today it's primarily used as bait in our uh, lobster fisheries here in the Northeast, in Maine and Massachusetts. Um, but the scale issue comes in when uh, we have industrial trawl fleets, these you know, huge vessels. Uh, I, I can't recall if Pam described them uh, very specifically, but these are the largest uh, fishing vessels on the East Coast. They can be up to 165 feet uh, in length. They tow nets that are up to six stories in height and the width of a football field, and they have uh, a a small mesh, a one-and-a-half to two-and-a-half-inch size mesh in it. And when these uh, nets are towed through the water, often by two of these large ships at a time, um, they're very indiscriminate uh, catching uh, vessels. Uh, they'll catch, uh, they're very good at what they do. They're very good at catching fish, and they're very good at catching Atlantic herring and mackerel, but the problem is they catch everything else that's in their path as well, and that includes at times... Uh, you know, marine mammals and uh, and larger uh, fish that uh, that uh, there are other fisheries for, but you know, critically to this discussion, they also catch uh, river herring and chad in their nets as well. And I think that uh, most probably turtles as well. Uh, they've been known to catch uh, turtles in the past, though. Um, and this is probably an another part of this discussion. Uh, it hasn't been very well documented because of their frankly, not have not historically been monitored as well as we would like to see. Well, there might be fishing waters that turtles aren't so big. Um, we're going to take a short break and be back with Roger Fleming and Pam Groman. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization 
organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about saving forage fish. The river herring and Atlantic sea herring, shad, uh, mackerel, I'm not sure if that's a forage fish or not, but it's, it's right in there in the mix. Uh, and Roger Fleming was telling us uh, how that the New, the New England and also the Mid-Atlantic fisheries manage, uh, Marine Fisheries Councils are having to deal with uh, an enormous diversity of herring fishing uh, boats and effort where... You have shore weirs possibly going all the way up to, uh, and then, you know, mon pa kind of boats to huge uh, mega uh, trawlers that um, two of them will, will, will work a net and uh, really hoover the, the floor up with uh, their effort, hoover the oceans. Uh, and so the other day, uh, Ocean River Institute got a call from Roger saying, uh, would we join... Uh, with Earth Justice in an effort to uh, address the, the work of the Fisheries Council. Roger, tell us a bit more about that. Uh, sure, Rob, thanks. Uh, your, uh, your Hoover uh, description is, uh, is quite appropriate in a lot of ways uh, for this discussion uh, because, uh, as I was mentioning before the break, uh, a lot of this has to do with, uh, with scale. And uh, these new vessels that... Uh, uh, came into uh, East Coast waters in, in recent years uh, are capable of catching uh, two to 300,000 pounds of fish in a single tow of their nets, and uh, these vessels can hold a million pounds of fish uh, in their hold uh, for any given fishing trip. So you can imagine that if, uh, if these vessels make a mistake and uh, set their nets on a run of river herring or shad when it's at sea, uh, the consequences can be, uh, can be quite serious. Um, and it's very difficult, uh, you know, frankly, to uh, even trace those effects. I, I think you know, people have seen their runs decline over the years, but we just don't know exactly uh, you know, why that's happening. And uh, you know, specifically with this sort of black hole that occurs when these fish go out into federal waters, uh, it's difficult to, to trace uh, any specific run to any specific area given today's science. So what we've been trying to do is to try to push the National Marine Fisheries Service 
uh, and the scientists there to uh, collect uh, better data to monitor these fisheries more carefully to um, you know, to uh, try to improve the science uh, behind uh, or related to uh, what happens to river herring and shad when they go out to sea. And um, Roger, I got to interrupt for a second. We sure. had an earlier program with Dr. Jamie Cornane, who has been working on that question of you know when the herring go into the ocean, where are they? And she's that they're getting pretty good science about in the Gulf of Maine, for example. There's a rotation of current, and they tend to have, be in different places during different seasons, and then they tend to be higher or lower in the water column with, with light level. So to me, it's like a merry-go-round of going up and down and and so this is this is important information if there are to be like hot spots where the herring are that um, maybe that's one approach is to tell these fishing boats not to be hitting a hot spot. Yeah, I think that's right, Rob. Uh, that science needs to be married to the appropriate set of regulatory measures in federal waters so that uh, you know we can direct fishermen away from uh, what you refer to as hot spots to avoid bycatch or to monitor those vessels more carefully so that, um, you know, if they get into a, a school of river herring so that uh, those river herring can be identified in a, uh, as being present in a timely way and we can move the vessels uh, off, uh, off of the river herring and hopefully uh, mitigate uh, the damage that's being done. Um, if, uh, you know, if you were to assume that uh, this midwater trawl fishery is going to uh, you know, continue to be prosecuted in federal waters off of the East Coast uh, uh, going into the future, then it's absolutely critical uh, that at minimum we improve those monitoring measures uh, so that the science can be uh, applied to the regulatory uh, framework and that uh, that information to mitigate the bycatch of these species. Uh, that is occurring. And uh, specifically with reference to the recent lawsuit uh, you referred to, uh, there is an amendment um, to the fishery management plan for Atlantic herring uh, that was recently finalized uh, in New England. It was called Amendment 4 to the Atlantic Herring Fishery Management Plan. And when this amendment started, it included a whole suite of potential measures to improve the monitoring uh, program uh, for the fishery and to include measures that would help to minimize the bycatch of river herring and shad occurring in these fisheries. But unfortunately, as that amendment moved forward, uh, the New England Fishery Management Council uh, made the decision to split those critical monitoring and bycatch minimization measures off of, uh, off of the amendment and to focus the amendment solely on implementing some recent changes to the Magnuson Act. Now, these recent changes are critical. They are uh, oriented toward establishing uh, firm catch limits for all of our fish species uh, around the country. Um, uh, but a, you know, a second uh, flaw in this amendment was that in setting the catch limits within this fishery, the council elected to only focus on setting catch limits for Atlantic herring and included no measures whatsoever to limit the catch of species like you know, river herring, blueback, sailwives, and shad. So 
we brought the suit on behalf of Ocean River Institute, uh, a recreational fisherman and a charter boat fisherman, uh, in effect challenging the final decision by uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service and the New England Fishery Management Council to split off those critical monitoring and bycatch minimization measures and, and their failure to uh, include catch limits for river herring and shad. We think that taking those steps is going to be critical to sorting out the types of problems that we're talking about uh, here today and hopefully to restoring uh, river herring and shad runs, uh, you know, not just in the Northeast, as Sam was discussing earlier. We have similar problems with the mackerel fishery in the Mid-Atlantic region. So, uh, so the suit... Um, focuses on those issues. It's, uh, it's in, uh, in somewhat technical Magnus uh, and Stevens Act terms, it's, it focuses on the failure of the National Marine Fisheries Service to uh, prevent uh, the overfishing of river herring and shad by setting catch limits for them and to uh, use the best available science uh, in uh, setting uh, the catch limits that they did set for Atlantic herring and their failure to minimize the bycatch of river herring and shad. So this is a, a tool that when the, the dialogue process doesn't come out with the right answers, uh, one can return with, one needs to step it up to uh, suit, uh, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, I think that that's a good way to look at litigation in this context. Um, you know, I, I attempted to describe the council process process earlier, and, you know, is uh, as flawed as we sometimes view it when decisions are made that, uh, you know, do not conserve the fish species that, you know, that the Act requires them to make. Uh, the council system also uh, has some redeeming qualities. I mean, there is something to be said for bringing uh, uh, fishing expertise to the table to participate in these critical decisions. And um, I mentioned earlier that these councils have tended to be dominated by fishing interests, but the fact is that they've become uh, more diversified in recent years. Uh, there are uh, uh, state fisheries uh, executives that are appointed to the councils by law. Uh, there are recreational fishermen that are now appointed in roughly equivalent uh, numbers to commercial fishermen. And we're even starting to see uh, some representatives from uh, conservation organizations uh, participating in these council processes. So litigation in this context um, I don't think should be viewed so much as an attack on the council process as uh, a tool to uh, be used to ask the councils to, to do a better job, to comply with the law and the requirements that in many instances, uh, you know, Congress worked very hard to, uh, to, you know, to think through these, you know, complicated issues of how to manage fisheries sustainably and, and try to account for these unintended consequences of, you know, to one fishery or resource when trying to prosecute another fishery or resource. So it's really, it, again, it's a, it's a tool to try to make uh, the councils and NIMS make better decisions. Um, I guess related to that, I, I should add that, you know, if if the suits are successful, um, essentially what we're asking is that these decisions uh, that were made uh, that we disagree with would be sent uh, back into the regulatory process uh, with guidance from the court 
uh, to, uh, to follow the law, and the hope would be that an improved amendment would, uh, would come out of the process. Uh, in these types of suits, you tend not to get outcomes dictated by the court. No, and that's a good thing, because otherwise every time someone lost an argument, they would be filing suit to win the argument. So, you know, you are only able to file this suit because it has bearings closely with what the, uh, the council tended to want to do anyways, I would think. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, um, uh, you know, for some of the reasons I stated earlier, uh, you, want, uh, you want the decision to go through that process. You want the scientists from the National Marine Fisheries Service uh, to uh, play a key role, for example, in setting uh, the catch limits or identifying the hotspots that you were talking about before. Uh, they're obviously much better equipped to do that than, say, a court. Um, but you also want it uh, back into that process uh, because, you know, groups like yours and, and, uh, and PAMs and uh, other members of the public get a crack at participating in the process, and they have an important role to play in trying to uh, influence these decisions. That's important. Uh, we're talking with Roger Fleming from the Earth Justice, and we'll be right back after this break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with... Uh, Roger Fleming from Earth Justice and Pam Groman from, uh, oh boy, Pam, i got to get this right, the National Coalition uh, for Marine uh, Conservation. You did it. And, Very good. <laughs> and is there a place people can go to learn more about your work? 
Absolutely. We'd love to have folks visit us online at www.savethefish.org. Savethefish.org. Yes. And Roger, is there a place they should go for um, your work? Uh, Sure. There's uh, earthjustice.org. And uh, I'd also recommend, um, you know, Pam and I are both uh, very heavily involved in what's called the Herring Alliance. And so herringalliance.org is another great source of information on these issues as well. Yes. Ocean River Institute is active with the Herring Alliance. And if you go to oceanriver.org, you can click on action and read about this uh, suit that we're talking about uh, that involves uh, addressing Amendment 4 of the Herring Fisheries Management Plan. And, and Pam, um, we heard a lot from Roger, uh, but could you review some of how important some of the parts are of this? Uh, well, lawsuit? absolutely. Uh, Roger talked about catch limits, that if river herring and shad are recognized as stocks in a fishery, that would entail that catch limits be set. And I can't emphasize enough how important it is that we come up with catch limits for these species at sea that are sustainable and that will not impair a state's ability to restore their runs. We have almost all the states um, likely to go in moratorium for river herring and then shad will follow. States right now to prove that a fishery is sustainable they basically are having to shut down their directed fishing mortality to compensate for the mortality that happens at sea. And that's completely backwards. I mean, what we want to do is really minimize what's happening at sea so we can reopen our fisheries someday. Um, So I just want to stress that the idea of a catch limit is very important. And we're also working with the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. They do have a new river herring stock assessment that is underway. We expect, um, I guess, maybe the first uh, preliminary draft of that to come out at the end of this year and peer review in early 2012. And uh, within that stock assessment, we're very much hoping that they look at um, some different uh, approaches and different analyses to come up with a limit for bycatch at sea. And um, both of the federal councils are looking to the commission to provide them some advice and what that limit could be. Um, so uh, anyway, that's one of the outcomes that would result from the Amendment for lawsuit, and I think it's a very important one to stress. Yes, especially, well, both of them. But the stock assessment, there's a sense that, you know, more uh, herring, uh, river herring are being caught out in the ocean than are returning to the rivers right. or than are going into the ocean, I guess. Right, and we, we have documented um, records by at-sea observers that do show that there are very large hauls of river herring caught as bycatch, and even though we don't know exactly what river they're from, we don't have that kind of testing um, available to us now, we know that those numbers rival and in some cases exceed runs in total run counts in some states for some rivers. So it's very alarming. It's very alarming. Uh, and what, what can... Uh citizens do who want to help save the forage fish, the, the blueback and the shad and the alewife and other river herring? Well, um, citizens um, along the, the Atlantic coast um, that live near river systems, there is a wonderful network of river keepers, and uh, there's a, a large number of them that are part of the Herring Alliance on um, our Herring Alliance website, um, which were all listed there. And that's um, www.herringalliance.org. And Roger can correct me if that's wrong. But, um, oh, that's right. 
Anyway, right. So there's a lot of um, watershed groups that are listed there, but look for your local watershed group. Get involved. There's much to do um, in river uh, in terms of continuing to keep track of these fish. Um, a lot of runs to try to count the fish that are coming in for spawning. Uh, they try to make sure that the river and passageways are cleaned up before the spawning runs start. So if you want to do some hands-on stuff, that would be great. But, hey, we always need people tuning into the fishery management process. There's public comment periods, very important ones, coming up this fall for both um, the New England Council on what they're planning to do for mitigating and monitoring river herring bycatch, and also the Mid-Atlantic Council will be going out to a big public comment period as well if everything stays on schedule. And that's a time where the Herring Alliance will certainly help um, facilitate and educate people on the issues that you can chime in and, and be part of the process. We really need folks to, to tune in. Yeah, I can't urge that enough that, you know, all you need to do is Google the respective uh, Marine Fisheries Council and it will take you to their web pages. They are very thorough about getting every, everything out there so that uh, before the meeting you know what the discussions around and what the issues are. And um, they do, you know, they do keep things for the public record in terms of uh, public comments and stuff. So it, it's very, the commenting at the right time is really, really makes a difference. Absolutely. And, and the Herring Alliance website does have a mechanism where folks can sign up to receive our updates. And we will definitely be keeping people tuned in um, as these amendments to these important fishery management plans move forward. Yeah, that's really the key is the Herring Alliance uh, website. They also have a blog running so you can hear, you can read the dialogue that's happening, critiquing what, what's happening at the councils and stuff. Roger, do you got any input about what people can do to help save these fish? Uh, sure, uh, that's all. Uh, obviously, uh, great advice. So one other angle that I think uh, we need help on is that uh, oh, there are members of, of each of these bodies uh, in common, specifically the, uh, the state fisheries directors sit on both the uh, Federal Fishery Management Councils and the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission uh, Councils, and it's uh, we think it's really it's very important that uh, these state directors, uh, or even more specifically the uh, the governors of the states, understand how uh, important uh, these issues are to uh, to voters, to you know, to citizens. Um, there's a number of uh, you know recreational uh, fishermen out there that work you know hand in hand with uh, conservationists, watershed groups on these issues, and I think, you know, together, if these, you know, governors and state directors here going into these meetings, that these are uh, matters that really matter to the, uh, to the public, uh, then they're going to respond to that. So I think it's, you know, it's important to participate at the, uh, the decision-making time at the various councils and when there are public comment opportunities with NIMS, but I think it's also critical to get in uh, ahead of time with uh, your state officials and let them know that this matters. Yeah, politics are local, just like herring. They're local. <laughs> <laughs> so we need, need to act locally. You know, be in touch with your local watershed keepers, your river keepers, um, and uh, environmental groups that are conveying opportunities. The Ocean River Institute, you know, at, with the Herring Alliance, we were 
uh, recommending to the governor about appointments that we'd like to see him make for the council. Uh, there are all kinds of opportunities uh, to um, be engaged in your community, and the rest will follow. Um, I think I'm afraid we're running out of time here, but I really want to thank you, uh, Pam, for joining us from uh, Virginia, from the uh, National Coalition for Marine Conservation. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here, and thanks for, for letting us talk about this important topic. And, and Roger Fleming from Earth Justice, it's always a pleasure to hear from the coast of Maine, and you're not too bad to listen to either. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about these issues. Um, that's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Uh, please visit the websites. Uh, you can get it all from OceanRiver.org. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.